Mina Montessario, wreathed in fire and smoke, hurtles through the dirigible's ornate rear window in a shower of stained glass. There's a moment where everything slows, and Mina is struck by the surreal beauty of the scene. From up here, several hundred feet above the nighttime streets of Kairos, the city glitters with the light of a thousand crystal lanterns. All around her, countless shards of glass expand outwards, reflecting the flames that erupt from the stricken airship, and a shimmering halo of yellow and red. She watches, fascinated, as bolts of blue-green arcane energy crackle past her as if moving through oil, missing her by mere inches. Time seems to stand still. Then, with her forward momentum spent, gravity reasserts control. There is nothing between her and the ground other than 500 feet of cold night air. Oh, bugger, Mina says. And then she's falling. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master, and your guide as we follow our hero, Nina Montessario, on her journey into the unknown. For this game, I'll be using D&D 5th edition ruleset, as well as a variety of other systems, tools, and tables as they take my fancy. The adventure begins... As she hurtles towards the city streets below, Mina fumbles desperately through her many coat pockets. Grabbing a small brass rod, she grips it in both hands, twists and pulls. For one horrifying instant, nothing happens. Then the rod thrums with power, blue symbols glow along its length, and her descent is slowed, from lethal to merely terrifying. Hanging from the rod, she glances up at the dirigible. Its lozenge shape illuminated against the night sky by the flames that lick up its sides. Then a series of black shapes emerge from the airship, falling fast. Her quarry have abandoned their ship. She counts five, six, seven. And then she's coming down fast, missing the rooftops and descending into the crowded streets of the spot. Even at this late hour, the streets are buzzing, alive with the throng of revellers, miscreants, chancers and thrill-seekers. Look out below, Mina yells, and then she's down, hitting the cobbles of Silver Street in a tangle of limbs and curses. By the time she's made it to her feet, the whole street is gazing up in amazement at the sight overhead. The airship is blazing brightly now, and the figures that emerge from it have also slowed their descent. From each of their backs, curious mechanical arms have emerged, and from those, small rotor blades now spin, slowing their fall. The nearest, clad in black leather, an assortment of machine parts and a mask that is featureless, save for two circular green eye lenses, points down at her and calls out in a weirdly distorted voice. Defiler, you will be dissembled and used for spare parts. Your fluids shall serve the great machine. A murmur runs through the crowd. Machine cultists. One by one, the seven land amidst the milling citizens of Silver Street. Each is similarly masked and clad in a 
ragtag collection of mechanical parts, tubes, pipes and filthy tattered robes. As one, they unsheathe blades and make for Mina. But they've come down over the spot. And if they expect the denizens of this quarter to simply run or cower in fear, they are sorely mistaken. As they start to push their way through the crowd, it only presses in more closely around them. The bolder and the drunker of the revellers attempting to press drinks into their hands or confuse or distract. Clearly these new arrivals are great sport. You looking for that girl, mister? I saw her go into the house of size over that way. Nah, mate. Look, there she goes, down Green Street. Mina grins, thanking the colossi for the spot, and then attempts to lose herself in the crowd. Hearing gentle music coming from a nearby bathhouse, she ducks low and makes for the pillared doorway. She has almost reached it undetected when an almighty explosion rocks the street. The airship, hundreds of feet up, detonates in an immense fireball that turns night to day and brings oohs and ahs of wonder from the watching crowd. Awe turns to terror, however, as debris starts to rain down. The crowd scatters, and Mina finds herself in plain view. There she is! Get her! Mina turns in the doorway, firing a bolt from her crossbow at her pursuers. It sails hopelessly wide. She backs into the bathhouse just as a huge, blazing section of the airship comes crashing down into the side of the building, sending flames, debris and dust in all directions. Mina staggers into a busy changing room, followed by a choking cloud of smoke and dust. Sorry, don't mind me, just passing through, she gasps to the startled bathers as she vaults over a series of benches. At least you're in the right place to get clean again. She comes out of the changing room, cornering at speed, then sprints down a corridor and around the edge of a large, heated pool filled with more aghast bathers. No running in the pool area! One particularly officious bather yells, but she's already gone. Mina has got to get out of here. The falling airship may have given the machine cultists pause, but she knows those fanatics too well to think they'll just give up. That was no idle threat back there. If they catch her, they'll slice her up and feed her to their stupid machine god thing. Which, considering she snuck onto their airship, set fire to it, and then blew it up, is probably fair enough from their point of view. Head in the game, Mina. Let's worry about my point of view for now, which involves staying alive if at all possible. There must be some way out of this blasted place. Aha! She finds a back door to the building and barges it open, stumbling into a darkened alley. It is illuminated at one end by flames. Not that way, then. If she can just sneak away in the opposite direction... A figure, silhouetted against the fire, points down the alleyway. My brother Cogs, I see her! Praise be to the great machine! Well, bugger. That feels like a suitable end to the first scene, so let's take a breather for a moment and step behind the curtain. Quite a bit just happened, and it's probably worthwhile explaining how. Pretty much everything outside of Mina's direct control in that opening scene was the result of consulting the GM emulator or other tools. So, for example, 
The very first thing that happened was Mina cast Featherfall, one of her prepared spells, a useful thing to have memorised when mucking about on airships. That was followed by a couple of questions to the GME, or Game Master Emulator. Do enemies follow? And what do they look like? That gave me responses of exceptional yes and crazily modern, which I interpreted as Mina being pursued by a whole load of flying machine cultists. The abstract prompts provided by the GME, when combined with narrative context, can send you to some really unexpected places. Those were two types of question. Firstly, a fate, or yes-no question, and secondly, a description question. For the fate question, I selected a likelihood, in this case, likely. I rolled percentile dice, and then I compared my result against the mythic fate chart based on my starting chaos factor of 5, which gave me one of four results, either yes, no, exceptional yes, or exceptional no. In this case, exceptional yes. For the description question, I rolled percentile dice twice, and took the results from the descriptor 1 and descriptor 2 tables in Mythic Variations 2, a supplemental book to the main Mythic book, and then interpreted the meaning based on my game context. Now, I won't go through every question and answer that followed, but I will include a full breakdown of all the mechanical moves in the show notes in case you're interested. I plan to do this for each chapter of The Lone Adventurer, so if you feel like it, you can follow those notes alongside the narrative to see how they tie together. Or not. Your choice. My plan for the game is to focus mainly on telling the story, without disrupting the pace too much by going into each and every dice roll as it happens. That said, I will continue to do these behind-the-curtain sections between scenes to summarise mechanical events that led to the emergent story or anything else that seems worth mentioning. A quick note on the enemies that I'm facing here. Now, my favourite tool for encounter-building has long been Cobbled Fight Club, and I used that website to create a deadly cultist encounter. Seven, one-eighth challenge rating foes is a deadly encounter for a party of four first-level PCs, and so that seemed appropriate, given my exceptional yes result, and the fact that Mina effectively represents four first-level PCs. That said, I'm not a huge fan of the monster manual. I think it's fair to say that the monster design in early 5e was still finding its way, and ended up a little flawed and also a little boring. Things have improved greatly in more recent books. I find the monsters in books like The Tome of Beasts and the level-up Monstrous Menagerie far more interesting. I'll be using those books for most of my foes. I wanted to explain a little bit about how my NPCs acted in that last scene. For my citizens, I wanted to introduce a new mechanic, rather than just asking Mythic every time whether they were doing the same thing or something different. A quick Google provided me with a lovely little subsystem devised by user Spitting Image on the RPGNet forum. Rolling 3d6 against a couple of tables gives a wide range of possible NPC tactics, influenced by their starting aggression level, and potentially subject to twists throughout the encounter. I think it worked pretty well for both my crowd and my cultists in this fight, so thank you, Spitting Image. I will probably continue to use this tool for now, and as usual, I will include details in the show notes. For the next scene, the mythic chaos factor, which started at 5, will rise to 6, as Mina was definitely not in control of things in that last scene. That's going to make things just a little bit more wild and extreme, with more chance of unpredictable things happening. 
Right, that's enough of a breather. Let's get back to Mina. She is dimly aware. She sprints down the alley with a horde of murderous psychotics at her heels that all is not well on Silver Street. Although it's not saying much, Silver Street is perhaps the most illustrious of the spot's several thoroughfares, attracting visitors from far more well-heeled areas of the city. Or at least it was. Now, it's more of an inferno. Mina hears the roar of flames, screams and glass popping and shattering in the heat as the fire takes hold, but there's nothing she can do to help. Right now she just needs to focus on staying alive long enough to outrun these lunatics. It shouldn't be that hard, she reasons, as she exits the alley at full pelt onto a deserted street lined with shuttered shops. After all, the cultists have seen fit to weigh themselves down with all manner of metal accoutrements. One of them is wearing a skirt made of spanners, for goodness sake. Of course, that is the precise moment at which Mina ploughs headlong into a collection of glass and earthenware, placed neatly outside a shop and obscured in the dark. She stumbles and nearly trips, but just manages to keep her footing. Behind her, she can hear the cultists gaining ground. Come on, Mina, run! She puts on a burst of speed, rounds a corner, and races down Hurst Way like all the hounds of hell are on her tail. This mission had seemed like the perfect opportunity to get back into the Whisperer's good graces. Just follow some shady cultists, House Montessario's impossibly smooth spymaster had instructed her. Find out what they're up to? And she had, quite successfully and surreptitiously, all the way onto their airship. She'd been so pleased with herself that had envisaged the tiniest twitch of the Whisperer's lip, betraying his surprise and his pleasure when he learned of Mina's discovery. Heading south, onto Bleak Street, she glances to the west, sees the glow lighting the night air above the ramshackle buildings. He's going to be none too pleased about this. She finds new reserves of endurance in her anger, opens up a wider lead on the cultist one she attempts to widen still further by pulling over a stack of crates behind her as she ducks into a winding alley. But her pursuers simply smash their way through the obstacle, gaining ground once more. Surely they must be tiring by now, Mina reasons. She knows herself to be a strong runner, and she's not carrying half the weight they are. But as if they read her thoughts, she hears yelling from behind her. You cannot escape the inexorable machine. Metal endures. The flesh is weak. She scrambles up and into the open window of a stable, startling several horses. Seeing an opportunity... Mina unlatches each of the stable partitions as she races past, banging loudly on the panels. The horses mill about, whinnying in panic as the far doors burst in. How weak do you reckon this flesh is? she yells, before ducking out the back way. Confronted with several tons of anxious horse, the maniacal cultists demonstrate a surprising degree of common sense. Go around, there must be another way. Exiting the stable, Mina finds herself in yet another narrow alleyway. She's in the tangles now, unless she misses her guess. This place is a maze. With luck, and assuming she doesn't get herself murdered by a local gang, she should be able to lose them in here. That said, luck has not been on her side today. How is she to know that the airship would take off with her still hidden aboard? And who could have predicted 
when she silently inspected the hold that she would find six barrels filled with infernal powder. Infernal powder was a comparatively recent discovery, something to do with using portals to the demon dimensions to gather raw materials that, when processed correctly, held tremendous explosive power. At least that was as much as Mina understood. Exact knowledge of the source of infernal powder, much like the substance itself, was a tightly controlled and jealously guarded commodity. Understandably, possession of infernal powder was one of the key differentiators, along with airship technology, that had led to the Kyrus Dominion establishing the greatest empire the chained world had ever seen. A thimbleful of this stuff could blow a man's head clean off. Which begged the question. How in creation had these sad sacks landed themselves with six barrels of the stuff? She'd been asking herself that exact question when she'd been discovered. In hindsight, grabbing at the oil lantern that had been hanging from the rafters and threatening to blow them all sky high if the cultists took another step was perhaps not the smartest move. But it had bought her the time to make it to the window and tossing the lantern oil and all, at the gathering cultists' feet, had certainly delayed them long enough for her to make her escape. But in the heat of the moment, she had not thought through what might happen next. And now half of the spot is a raging inferno. She is in so much trouble. The only tiny positive she can take from all this is that she's kept her face covered with a scarf throughout. At least no one can identify her. Assuming she makes it out of here, of course, and that someone doesn't simply just remove the scarf from her stiffening corpse. As if to underline the thought, she hears the faint clanking and shouts of the cultists from back down the alley as she emerges from the tangles. Seven keys! How can they still be after her? Her own breath is already laboured as she corners fast onto Fair Oak, and a cold sweat of fear suddenly prickles down her back. What if she can't outrun them? Spotting several empty barrels outside a shuttered wine merchant's, she kicks them over, sending them rolling down the hill in the direction of her pursuers. She can do this. She just needs to keep going, to hang on. But she can feel her body weakening. Every breath is ragged now. Her lungs are on fire. She can feel herself slowing, and the cries of the cultists are growing louder as they gain on her. Blessed are our holy pistons, Brother Cogs. We are gaining on her. Those are... Pistons, you lunatic! Mina gasps. You've just strapped bits of metal to your legs! Blasphemy! Stop trying to reason with the bloodthirsty fanatics, Mina! She chastises herself. Save your breath. You're going to need it. A desperate idea occurs to her, and she tugs an engraved brass ball, perhaps an inch in diameter, from one of her pockets. Depressing a section with her thumb, she holds it for several seconds, then releases. Coming to a series of turns, and then a T-junction, she tosses the ball one way, then heads off in the other. As the cultists approach the junction, they can hear the sound of Mina's footsteps and laboured breathing, coming from both directions. Which way, Brother Cogs? Should we split up? No, it's a trick. Look, the sound is coming from that small device. She went that way. You are right, Brother Cog. Infallible is the logic of the machine. Nina's heart sinks, and for the first time she feels genuine, debilitating terror. Her legs are like jelly as she forces herself along Tipple Street, and her heart is pounding near out of her chest, every breath like razor blades. 
She's more stumbling than running now, and with every step, the risk of simply dropping from exhaustion grows. She's too tired to run, too tired to fight. It's over. And then the citizens of the spot come to her aid once more. As she passes a tavern, light leaking from behind its closed shutters, the doors burst open, and perhaps twenty drunken brawlers spill out onto the street. From up ahead, the door of another tavern opens at the sound, and then another. Burly, shaven-headed types emerge, all significantly worse for drink, and all spoiling for a fight. Before she knows it, the whole street has descended into a brutal melee. It's chucking out time in the spot, and it saves Mina's life. She doesn't stick around long enough to see if the machine cultists make it through. With one last surge of strength, Mina escapes into the night. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes or telling your friends. It really is a huge help. You can find show notes at theloneadventurer.podbean.com. I'll include any links mentioned there, as well as my interactions with the mythic GM emulator and any other mechanics information. Mean story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.